from McMinnville, Oregon. This is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that's going to talk about bats. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Silberg. Today's title is na 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 bat plague. Hey, Chad. That's good stuff, Mike. Well, we bring our A game every time. So today, my understanding is we are going to go batty, as it were, <laughs> about the science of a plague. Yes. Well, we got to learn about bats first. And we have a very special guest, former student of Linfield College. I guess and it was it's now Linfield Lin- College at the yeah, time. Well, yeah. What was Linfield College? <laughs> um, it's now Linfield University, of course. Yeah. Let me introduce our special guest. I'm very happy to welcome Leah Rensel, wildlife biologist and current PhD student at the University of Montana. Prior to this, she had a job as a field tech and biologist for the Wildlife Conservation Society in Canada, but she doesn't currently work for them anymore. But I do believe at least some of what we'll talk about today is some of the work that you did with them. So welcome, Leah. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah. So you have dropped in a time or two and regaled me with stories of bats. And I think I might have shown you a bat that got up into one of our fume hoods in the building. Do you remember this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's dead and is in the freezer or something like that. And the topic of this interesting bat plague came across my radar and I just got to thinking, you know, I know somebody who knows a lot about bats. And so here we are. I looked you up and you graciously agreed to join us. So maybe a good place to start would just be to tell our listeners a little bit about bats generally and what they are, why they're interesting. Well, I think a lot of people have this perception that bats are these scary creatures. They're going to get tangled in your hair. They might carry diseases like rabies. But another side to bats is that they're incredibly cool. Yeah, uh, They are, I think, the most diverse clade of animals with something like 1,400 species. And they're all across the planet, with the exception of like the extreme deserts and the polar regions, which is mind boggling to think about. Um, yeah, so they're like the most diverse mammals. Is that? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So there are some that will get in your hair and bite your scalp. <laughs> okay. uh, it's a little unlikely. Okay. They're oftentimes more scared of you than you are of them. And I will admit sometimes the juveniles are still getting a hang of how to be a bat and they will crash into things. But mm. trust me, if you get near a bat, he wants to get away from you as fast as possible. That's good to know. All right. Let's see. So that's a little bit about their biodiversity. What should we know about their behaviors, where we find them, how they make their way in the world? So one of the cool things about being an incredibly diverse clade of men mammals is many of them are responsible for things that we don't even think about. Mm. My favorite example is many bats are responsible for pollinating specific species of plants. If you've ever heard of the agave plant, the lesser long-nosed bat is responsible for pollinating that plant. Without it, we wouldn't have tequila. Well, okay. Thanks for joining us today, Leah. That's good (laughs) enough for me. (laughs) Sorry, go on. In addition to pollinating, some of them spread seeds. Is this coming out in their poop? Yeah, they're frugivores, meaning that they eat fruit. So they'll okay. go and chow down on something tasty like a fig or a cacao bean and then fly away and defecate. And ta-da, that plant has been spread to this new place. So many plants are dependent on that form of seed dispersal in order to continue to exist. Okay. And so that that's just... that's the guano that <laughs> you probably heard that word. Yeah, right. The bat guano. Yeah. Haven't there been episodes in, in human history where bat guano was like highly prized? as a fertilizer? Am I just making that up? Nope. It's 
insanely good for your garden if you can get a hold of it full of nutrients oh okay All but right. also seeds for these other for <laughs> figs and things like that yeah well so what's neat about our bats is we have a couple pollinators further south towards mexico but most of the bats that we have up north are insectivores meaning that they chow down on all the little things in the night that might bite you mm. and they're actually responsible for pest control for agriculture and forestry the common saying is that a little brown bat can eat its weight in insects in a single night which that'd be equivalent of me eating 135 pounds of cheeseburgers in a single go (laughs) yeah that's Mm. pretty amazing i mean they are really energetic as far as mammals go right they Mm -hmm. have a really high energy burn with all the flight and stuff so i can kind of see that they're sort of like hummingbirds in that way Mm -hmm. but still that's pretty impressive So you mentioned somebody that lives up around here, the little brown bat. Is that kind of the bat that we see sort of commonly throughout North America? Yeah, that's a species that is found across most of North America. And if you go out in the summertime to a lake or a stream and you see this little bat flying around and just kisses the water Mm -hmm. or is doing these acrobatic moves over any sort of body of water, that's more than likely a little brown bat. Okay. I've definitely seen those on numerous occasions Mm -hmm. around here at sort of dusk over a lake and stuff. So that's when we see them is sort of Mm -hmm. at twilight, dusk, whatever. So where are they the rest of the time? And what's their sort of social life? What's the social life of a bat like? Where are they spending their days and how are they interacting with each other? Well, it depends on the species. Some are pretty solitary and they'll spend their whole lives that way until they swarm, which is code for indiscriminate sex in order to reproduce. Wait, what was what was that term again? Swarm? Indic- yeah, swarm. So that's what swarming is in the bat world. That's interesting. The big party. Ah, yeah, because for honeybees, the, the word swarm means something else. So, okay, that's oh. cool. So lots of indiscriminate sex. So yep. you've got like how how many individuals of each sex are we talking about sort of together in a roost? Again, it's the answer to a lot of those questions are going to be it's species specific. Okay. So the let's use the little brown bat as an example. They uh-huh. have a really interesting life history cycle. So let's start with the swarming, which happens in the fall. And this can be a couple bats or it can be a lot of bats. It just depends on where you're located. After the female is fertilized, she holds on to the sperm and then she goes through hibernation and then fertilizes. So she and all the males head to these places called hibernacula, which mm-hmm. is, as the name suggests, the place you hibernate. Mm-hmm. So everybody clusters together in usually natural structures. So think caves or mines. Mm-hmm. And then they spend the whole winter in there until it warms up sufficiently and the bugs start coming out that they can leave again. So is it like a true form of hibernation where their metabolic rate really declines and they're sort of non-responsive. Okay. Yeah, so it's in the bat world known as deep torpor. So okay. really, really low body temperature, really low heart rate, very few calories needed to run it. So a bat will spend the late summer and fall getting as fat as possible <laughs> in order mm-hmm. to sustain themselves until the spring. Hmm, they might okay. wake up occasionally to get water, but for the most part, they're just whatever hunk of rock they're on, that's where they are. I do that at night too. Yeah, I get up and get some water and then... <laughs> Oh, and that's why they prefer caves, because if you go far enough deep, then it's a constant temperature. And so that'll mm-hmm. keep them from freezing exactly. and so forth. Insulation. Yeah. And then okay. once they arouse from torpor, so they wake up, they return to their summer locations, their summer homes, as it were. Oftentimes uh-huh. this involves quite a distance of migration. Hmm. 
And at these summer homes, something interesting happens. So the males have done their duty. They're off just doing whatever they please, living the bachelor life. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the females are carrying this fetus, right? Mm -hmm. And they've decided the most effective way to rear a baby bat is called a pup. To rear this pup is to get together (laughs) in large groups of females, sort of like a commune, in order to birth, nurse, and wean their young together. It's Mm -hmm. somewhat unique in the animal kingdom and is actually one of the coolest things, I think, about bats in general because these guys are just amazing mothers oh yeah what Mm -hmm. makes you say that well for starters this pup is born at a third of the mother's body weight which again is equivalent to me giving birth to a 40 pound baby (laughs) yeah yeah well and also (laughs) they have to fly with Mm -hmm. all that extra weight yeah Yeah, they look like they have little golf balls for bellies little (laughs) water balloons just protruding you can definitely tell when you have a pregnant back because it's like holy moly the pup might come any minute Do they produce just typically one at a time? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, presumably after they're born, they have to go hunt so that they can produce the milk and all that things for their pup. Do they leave the pup behind and go hunt and then come back? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Which is part of the reason they decided to do this collectively. It's a little easier to keep a pup that is born blind and without fur and really defenseless. If you have them all together and you can have some of the nearby bats helping using their collective surface area to keep the pups warm, it works out much better than if you're just doing it individually. The alternative is the pup attaches to the nipple, which is located under the armpit on a bat, and then she has to fly with the pup hanging there, which is incredibly difficult to do. Yeah, it does sound awkward. Right. <laughs> so I didn't realize that the original saying was blind as a newborn bat. Bit more accurate. Yeah. Huh. So bats are not actually blind when they're adults. No, they're capable of sight. They just have other senses that are a bit more useful for that. So did you say that in these places where all of the pups are, that when many of the mothers are out foraging, does an adult or two stay behind and sort of serve as the guardian or something? Um, Well, the little brown bats can form fairly large colonies of a couple hundred. So the biggest emergence happens right after sundown. Everybody's hungry and they just take off. But Mm. if they have dependent young, sometimes that'll be staggered. So some are Uh. left behind. One other cool thing about these collections, which the term is actually called maternity colony, is they often select the most warm, stable temperatures in order to have their pups. So they're relying on passive rewarming from the environment to keep everything nice and toasty warm. It Mm. also helps with pup development because pups that are really warm develop faster than pups that are cool. Mm. Mm. What kind of dangers do these colonies encounter? Yep. There's a lot of things that can threaten a pup and a mom. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, predators are a big deal. I've had owls scope out maternity colonies and snatch a bat as it came out. I actually had one snatch one out of the trap while I was watching. I was so angry. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. That was mine. Um, like, wait, let me let me look at the tag first. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Raccoons can get in there. Rat. So they often like try to collect really secure spots with only a couple entrances that are often too small for some of the larger carnivores. Essentially, anything that will eat a bat, like a coyote, for example probably will. They also deal with parasite loads. So oftentimes when I catch these bats, I'll pull up in their wings and there'll be this bug that is fairly large for the size of the bat. They're actually called bat bugs. Mm-hmm. And they look identical to bed bugs with like the exception of one antennae in a different location. Uh-huh. Um, the difference is they're obligate, so they can only exist on a bat. So when they inevitably get on me and I go home and can feel them crawling on me, it's like <laughs> a will eventually die. <laughs> yeah, okay, no problem. <laughs> So you said the males go off. Are the males basically alone 
when they're off doing their own things or so is it like you know they hibernate with large groups of and then they go off and they're all by themselves for a while and then they're probably yeah, together so with like a fantasy baseball league it is summer <laughs> oh that's true so well sometimes you get the the adolescents that live in the basement um they'll return to the maternity colonies with the moms and just hang out for a while until they get booted <laughs> i know what that's like yeah <laughs> <laughs> It's like, come on, at least get a job. Just <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Okay. So a couple of summers ago, I went, I've got family in Kentucky, as mm-hmm. longtime listeners know. But one of the amazing things about Kentucky is that they have this, I think it's the largest cave system and it's a national park, the only underground oh. national park that's called Mammoth Caves. Oh. And anytime you go in or out of those caves, they had these little pads that you had to walk across to clean off your shoes and things like that. Mm. Because they were worried about some sort of disease that the bats could get. What do you know about that? Yeah, I know I'm not allowed in a lot of caves unless I'm wearing very specific articles of clothing. (laughs) (laughs) So the reason for those precautions is due to something called white nose syndrome, which is a deadly fungal disease that has killed an estimated point. 7 million bats since it was introduced to North America in 2006. The name of the fungus is Pseudogymnoasis destructanus, otherwise Mm. known as PD. I'm not going to try to say that, but sounds like you know what you're talking about. Okay, PD. (laughs) Okay, so this is a fungus and it's called white nose syndrome. You say it arrived in the U.S. in 2006, probably. Any idea from where? Yeah, so that is the grand mystery. And I've heard all sorts of conspiracy theories. My favorite was that it arrived on cheese, but I don't know if that's true. We've done genetic analysis and it comes from Eurasia, which is a large swath of the world. It doesn't really narrow it down. What's crazy about this fungus is that it is very temperature sensitive. Its closest relatives are found deep in glaciers or other extremely cold environments. So if Mm. it gets above 60 degrees, it can't reproduce. And is it a, are these relatives parasites of other things? Are they free living or what? That's so weird. Uh, Well, it doesn't affect bats that are in Eurasia. So it does suggest that perhaps it was something endemic. The other crazy thing about white nose syndrome is much of its spread is actually due to humans. So that's one of the reasons why when you visit caves, they'll ask you questions about the clothes you're wearing, whether you've come in contact with bats or been in other caves. That was one of the major reasons for the spread because all of a sudden these bats started dying in caves in New York and the scientists all rushed out to see what it was and then carried it to other caves when they went to check it out. It took a while to figure out that, you know, it gets on your clothing, it gets on your boots and you can Mm. take it to other environments. Oh, wow. That's eerily reminiscent of uh, concerns about chytrid fungus being spread all over Mm -hmm. and killing off all the amphibians. It's basically the same thing. A bunch of scientists like responded to a big die off and then inadvertently possibly spread it. So, okay. Can you then tie this into some of the work that you were doing in your master's? Mm -hmm. So you could see the march of white nose syndrome across North America. Mm -hmm. Then it got all the way to the Rockies and all of a sudden it popped up in the Pacific Northwest and we knew it was coming. We just didn't know it would arrive so soon. Since I was working there actually on bats at the time, I realized that, oh, we didn't know anything about our bats and that all of a sudden there's this need to figure out how do we fight this disease because everything else we've tried so far like preventing it from spreading wasn't working so i hunted down this woman who will be important to this story her name is dr Corey lawson she was one of my supervisors in my master's and i asked her if she needed a master's student or knew of anyone who needed a master's student to study bats and white nose and she said funny that i actually need one so i politely stalked her for six months until she decided (laughs) that i was on board and she got funding Mm -hmm. So I ended up actually in British Columbia working on her project. She 
in collaboration with a bunch of other universities in British Columbia, has developed this crazy technique for mitigating the spread of white-nose syndrome, specifically in the Pacific Northwest. Uh And what is that technique? Oftentimes for vaccines, you actually need to give it to an individual. For example, we get vaccinated against COVID. It's really Uh difficult to do that for wildlife because you can't catch all of them all the time. Mm -hmm. So instead, they came up with this idea of introducing healthy bacteria. And the tagline is yogurt for bats. Like we eat yogurt Mm -hmm. that has healthy bacteria. It helps our immune system uh, Mm -hmm. respond to diseases. Take that a step further. If you put healthy bacteria on the wings and fur of these bats, which are where the fungus attaches, hopefully with that, when they come in contact with it, which is during hibernation, when they get their body temperature gets really low, that will give them just enough immunity that they can fight it off and not die as a result or become extremely stressed out. Hmm. And so is the theory then that by coating the bat in this layer of otherwise harmless bacteria, Mm -hmm. any sort of fungal spores that might find their way onto the bat sort of get outcompeted or can't mm-hmm. can't get established there. And I mean, that's kind of like similar to uh, maintaining a healthy microbiome on your own surface too, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And that reminded me of, that was part of the issue with white nose syndrome, right? That they would be in hibernation and they would wake up in the middle of the winter. And so when they had this fungus and they would wake up in the middle of the winter and die because there were no food source for them at that point. Mm-hmm. And they're dehydrated. The fungus mm-hmm. causes them to lose all their water, which can kill them as well. Hmm. How does it do those things? Is anything known about the physiological effects of the fungus on the bat? It attaches to the surfaces that aren't covered at fur. So the nose, for example, hence the name, but also the wing membrane. Um, It increases evaporative water loss during hibernation, which is a natural byproduct of being asleep anyway, but it just sends it into overdrive. So Hmm. oftentimes the bats are waking up, looking for water, everything's frozen. Hmm. It also causes massive scarring. Think holes, giant holes in these poor little bats' wings. Mm. that stresses them out. So even if they survive through the winter and they wake up, all of a sudden now they're starting behind the starting line. They're already stressed out. It's extremely difficult to recover and to reproduce at the same time. Mm -hmm. So so this is probably worse for female bats then. Mm -hmm. If you're relying on their ability to produce the next generation, yeah, the burden is much higher for them. So is it spread during hibernation or during the swarm, swarm orgy, swarm G? (laughs) (laughs) The fungus is maintained in cool environments. So Hmm. there is a a sort of a period when they come out of hibernation where they still are potentially infective. The theory is that during the summertime when they're in these hot environments raising pups, it's not as big a deal, but we don't know that for sure, which is why when I work in areas that do have PD or even where we suspect my PD might arrive soon, I have to wear the equivalent of a Tyvek moon suit and a mask and booties, and it's a whole production. Hmm. So that's a little bit about the work that the lab was doing that you joined. What was the focus of your work specifically? What were you looking at? Well, I started working on this project and I discovered something interesting, which is that periodically I go out to these maternity colonies that were in barns or bat boxes or bridges, and I would reliably capture them for part of the summer, and then all of a sudden they disappear. So they're, they're moving roost locations or something. Is that, that's the idea? Yep. Okay. And was that, is that something that people kind of knew about, or is that kind of like you were one of the first to sort of observe that behavior? Well, again, this is a theme. Uh, bat behavior is variable. The little brown bats on the East Coast behave differently than the little brown bats on the West Coast. 
And we don't have a ton of information about how our bats behave in the Pacific Northwest in general. But one of the common things I ran into was, oh, these are maternity colonies and they're in buildings and so they don't move. If they're in trees, for example, which aren't as warm or insulated, they might move more frequently because mm -hmm. also predators. But mm -hmm. those buildings are pretty ideal. Why would they move? Except for I had evidence that, yes, in fact, they did move. And oftentimes they'd just disappear for a while and then they'd show back up again. And I really mm -hmm. wanted to know why. Okay. And were you able to get at the why part of this? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, as a side effect of working on this white nose syndrome project, I got to play with some, a system called a pit tag system, which is similar to a microchip that you put in your cat or dog. That's just mm. a passive transponder between your shoulder blades. And if you scan that microchip, it'll tell you who it is. So mm. I caught a bunch of bats put a bunch of tiny little microchips in them and then put antennas on a bunch of different roofs so that I could track individuals as they move between roofs. Hmm. Okay. Did you just identify locations where you knew that they were? And did you put your little detectors in other places that you thought, oh, this looks like it might be a good place for bats? A bit of both. I knew from observations that these roosts were occupied at periodic times throughout the summer. And then I also used something called radio telemetry, which are tiny little transponders that put out a beeping signal that you can follow. So I would track bats to other locations. You can also get information just by going out, locating a new roost and capturing all the animals there, looking for individuals that you have tagged previously. So you said that they will roost, that there are certain roosts that is periodically mm -hmm. used. So do they return back? Are they just alternating between two spots or they go one place and then that group is gone? and then another group mm -hmm. finds the roost? The answer to that question is all of the above. One of the biggest findings I found was our idea of these maternity colonies being discrete, just a collection of the same individuals, isn't really accurate. They form very specific social groups at maternity colonies when they have pups that aren't capable of flight. And they'll pick the best, most warm roost they can possibly find, and they'll stay there until the pups are capable of flight. Hmm. But outside of that very specific period, which is called lactation, late pregnancy and lactation, they'll move around quite a bit. Which, you know, if you think about it, is actually in their favor. If they've got predators following them, that mm. throws them off the scent. Early in the spring, things are much cooler. So those really nice roosts in late summer might not be as good. Or they mm. might get too hot later in the summer for them to use. So this mm. gives them a level of dynamic adjustment to whatever is happening. Mm. Okay. And then the individuals that they would encounter when they move to these other roosts might be individuals that had been elsewhere and mm -hmm. then come to this other location. And so now everybody from maternity group A and maternity group B, now A and B are sort of mixed together at this third place. Mm -hmm. Is yep. that kind of? You nailed it. That's the highlight of my research is that I found there's a second species called Yuma myotis, and they look identical to little brown bats. You can't tell them apart unless you really know what you're doing. Huh. The little brown bats would only stick around at the maternity site long enough to rear the pups, and then they take off for swarming or migration or hibernation, where have you. But the Yumas, they stick around and they mix with these other maternity colonies for a reason that isn't directly related to reproduction or at least rearing of the young. So it could be they're teaching the pups where to go. This is mm. the places that we forage. These are the really nice roots. Or it could just be a giant bat party. Yes, we did it. We survived. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so do little browns, do they migrate a long distance, like down to Mexico or Southern California? Or are we talking like migration from a warm cave to a cooler cave? Well, that is actually one of the grand mysteries of the Pacific Northwest. We don't know <laughs> where our bats hibernate. Oh. <laughs> we have no idea. Okay. The huh. best guess we have is that 
there was this biologist in Alaska who got insanely lucky. She had a maternity colony at an airport so she could stick a transmitter on them. These transmitters, by the way, only have like maybe a kilometer of range you can get out of them. So you have to stay right on top of it. So mm. she just sat there and waited till the bats took off for the swarming hibernation period and then followed them in a fixed wing aircraft. <laughs> she found something really crazy. They were hibernating in teleslopes, but instead of these large groups, they were just a couple individuals, maybe singles. And they settle in the teleslope get covered in snow and they don't come out until it melts. Okay. A talus slope. So I'm thinking of like the side of a mountain mm -hmm. that's sort of had a, a big rock slide mm -hmm. and all of those big chunky pieces of rock. That's the talus. Is that what we're talking about mm -hmm. here? So yep. just in basically at ground level, just sort of a, maybe around the back in a tiny little pocket. Mm -hmm. <laughs> hmm. So picture, if you will, the North Cascades. And then how difficult it is to track a five gram animal with a transmitter that can only be a kilometer from an aircraft through gigantic craggy mountains. You're not going to find them. Huh. <laughs> well, but that would suggest then that the white nose syndrome would be less of a problem in the Pacific Northwest, I would think, right? Well, it may explain why we've seen slower spread in Washington than we have elsewhere. Okay. But if we are starting to see declines, it seems like there may be a couple years when a site is infected before you start seeing declines at maternity colonies. Hmm. It's hard to say. Okay. And so is the white nose syndrome, is that like spread pretty easily from individual to individual? Mm -hmm. And so like once an infected bat shows up at a roost, then so then it would seem so that popping around and being sort of promiscuous about the roosting sites that you use seems like it would really make it spread rapidly, possibly. Is that, am I thinking about this the right way? Yes. Although we are operating under the assumption that the maternity colonies and the moving around of the roost isn't going to affect them as much, but we honestly don't know. Hmm. So that is the brilliance of this white nose syndrome probiotic prophylaxis idea. Mm -hmm. You can't catch all these bats and inoculate them as individuals and have any sort of immunity persist beyond a single generation. Mm -hmm. So instead, you introduce this healthy bacteria that is usually found in soil in the Pacific Northwest. You make it into sort of a clay powder that you can spray up into a roost. The bats rub up against the probiotic spread it on their wings, and then they might go elsewhere during the summer and spread that healthy bacteria with them. Hmm. I should mention all this bacteria has been shown in a lab setting to either slow or inhibit the growth of white nose syndrome, and also as individuals and collectively. Oh, okay. All right. So why should just uh, the broader public be concerned or care about this bat plague that was first introduced and is spreading across the country? Well, if we lose our bats, we're in hot water because, again, we're relying on them for all these ecological purposes that we don't even think about. Pest control, pollination, seed dispersal. And I think they bring an estimated $4 billion of economic benefit each year. Hmm. That's just bats. And just bats. And there's also the idea that systems that have a lot of biodiversity and species are more resilient to changes, such as climate change. Mm -hmm. um, and bats are often keystone species um, that are really, if you look at the health of bats, you can determine how well an ecosystem is doing. So bats are an indicator species for the health of an ecosystem. So if the bats are doing well, the system is doing well. Hmm. That makes sense. So I know that you are, you've moved on to working in a a different system now, but what is kind of like the future direction that some of this bat work might be heading 
So when I started with this project in 2018, it was specific to British Columbia. Um, the only problem is that we expected white nose syndromes to just take over in the Pacific Northwest, and it didn't. It still, hmm. to my knowledge, hasn't been found in British Columbia. Hmm. So this year, part of my job was to help expand this project into Washington State, which does have infected bats. Hmm. So currently, we've set up these sites. We have these pit tags. We're going to apply the probiotic next year, and then we're going to monitor winter survival. So do they come back after a single year? And how does that differ between sites which have the probiotic and sites which don't? Mm. So the next step is verifying the efficacy of this probiotic. And then if it is found to be effective, the next step is scale. So the uh -huh. ultimate idea is this tool is easy enough to use that landowners without a scientific background can go and apply it to their bats. And that we can fine-tune it for it to be used in other areas of North America. Currently, those bacteria strains are specific to the Pacific Northwest and its soils. But you can find analogous species in other areas. So hopefully, we can build something that actually has a chance of making a dent and helping these species become resilient to the fat plague. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm really interested to also know where this white nose fungus came from and mm -hmm. what its story is. That's really fascinating when things get transported from one part of the planet to another part of the planet and become sort of like a, an infectious disease in this new part of their mm -hmm. range. It's like, well, what were they doing in their home range? <laughs> right. It's the reality of the modern world that we live in. We're connected by transportation and we're just a, a global interconnected community. And a lot of these invasive species were designed to operate in a specific environment. And suddenly they find themselves in a new one and they'll either die or they'll thrive. Right. And I yeah. expect things like this are going to become incredibly commonplace, both in terms of human diseases and wildlife diseases. Yeah, indeed. And I mean, the fact that we're conducting this conversation on Zoom, I think, is a, mm -hmm. <laughs> a, a tribute to that fact. So... Well, thanks, Leah. Well, thank you. This is a nice to stretch those muscles. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Thank you. This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Winfield University. Rodi Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and a rating, and that'll help other people find our podcast. If you have ideas for a future episode, email us at crisscrossingside at gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase or hit us up on Facebook. Until next time, thanks for listening.